Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast to discuss the most recent doings at one of the more interesting divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. As for who the Us in the Show title is, I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and as for the other half of the dynamic duo that powers the particular podcast, who's now almost certain to give me crap because I made a DC reference <laughs> during what's supposed to be a Marvel exclusive show, but let me introduce the one, the only, Aaron Adams. Pow, zap, bazing! I saw those shows in real time. It was a lot like a live action cartoon back then. With Very the color so. and the and the overlays of the words and whatnot, and mm-hmm. my wife is a huge Adam West fan to begin with, so we've we've got stuff littered all over with classic '67 Batman stuff around here. Very cool. And speaking of which, Seth MacFarlane put together a film about Adam a while back, and it turns out there was a reason he kept bringing him on. Family Guy, he just he he just loved him. I mean, he was just sort yeah. of this genuinely loopy guy. Yeah, who didn't take himself terribly seriously, which is why when whenever Seth handed him left-handed stuff for Family Guy, it's sure, absolutely. Yep. All right. I know it's been far too long between podcast folks, and we've got a lot of Marvel news to break down here. So we'll just jump into the Spidey story that literally broke overnight. And on a previous Marvelous Disney podcast. Aaron and I shared everything we knew about the Spider-Man Homecoming sequel. We had the release date, July 5th, uh, 2019. We had the villain, Mysterio, which which you gave us a lot of good info on, Aaron. We even had the setting of this thing, which uh, primarily London, right? Yep, so far. But the one the question was, well, what is this film going to be called? And evidently Tom Holland, whether accidentally or on purpose, broke this news. With an Instagram video. Evidently, he's he's out right now at Seattle's Ace Comic Con. And online, he first apologizes because there is no new news, supposedly, in regard to the, the Homecoming sequel. And he then goes on to say, I don't understand how there could be a sequel because didn't my character just die in Avengers Infinity War? Man, I probably should have said spoiler first right there, shouldn't I? <laughs> mm. Yeah. But anyway, Holland now holds up an iPad which he reveals that he's just been, been sent the script for Homecoming 2. And like he said, screenplay, I'm very much looking forward to. And if, and if you freeze frame the Instagram video, you can actually read what's on the iPad. And it's the title page of the screenplay. And it reads Spider-Man Far From Home, which, as Aaron pointed out off air, isn't exactly a surprise, given that no. we knew this story was set in London? Yeah, I was trying to think. God, it sounds so familiar, and I couldn't think of what it was, and the closest I've come so far is Fievel Goes West. (laughs) Spider-Man, far from home. Fievel Goes West. It just is, here's our hero. He's on a journey. It's going to be in London. I'm sure there will be shenanigans and biscuits and references of tea or something. I totally agree, Uh, but, but just a little more background here. This Homecoming sequel is supposedly the second installment of a new Spidey trilogy that uh, Sony and Marvel Studios are going to produce. Production actually gets underway in the UK next month and Marvel Studios has just let out that this is going to be the film that kicks off phase four of the cinematic universe. Kevin Feige's been out there talking about this and the way he's explained it is that Spider-Man Far From Home will pick up just minutes after the story for Infinity Wars 2, or whatever Avengers 4 is called, which I guess, I guess makes perfect sense given that there's like two months between yeah. the release date of Infinity Wars 2 or Avengers 4 or whatever and Spider-Man Homecoming. Because this is Feige saying it, so it's it's got to be true, a number of your favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe characters aren't expected to survive what happens in Infinity Wars 2. So Tom Holland's character is basically going to be the one that holds the audience's hand and then leads them into the next incarnation of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And speaking Mm. of movies that kind of Lego connect together, the press junket for Ant-Man and the Wasp is literally going on right now, Aaron. Okay. There's already been a number of folks who, I mean, don't get me wrong, they're embargoed, they can't do their full reviews of this movie yet, but they can sort Mm -hmm. of do the Twitter Reader's Digest version, and What's showing up online is uh, most of the people who have seen the film are saying 
It's a worthy sequel to the original Ant-Man, which was released to theaters back in June of, of 2015. And in fact, Terry Schwartz of IGN tweeted that she had a blast watching Ant-Man of the Wasp. It's super funny, which is the greatest charm. Schwartz then went on to say that Evangeline Lilly, whose Hope Van Dyne character finally gets to suit up as, as the Wasp in the sequel, is a badass in Ant- Ant-Man 2, which, again, sure. if you, you've seen the ads, not exactly a surprise. For you parents out there who are dealing with kids who were kind of traumatized of what they saw in Avengers Infinity Wars when a number of their favorite Marvel characters seemingly went down for the count thanks to Thanos, <laughs> Terry went out of her way to say that Ant-Man and the Wasp is light and family friendly, which will hopefully make this Peyton Reed picture the perfect ways to sort of ease your kids back into the cinematic universe. According to Feige, this lighter, more family-friendly tone isn't an accident. In fact, given all the cartoon carnage that we saw in Infinity Wars, he kind of felt that moviegoers kind of needed the cinematic equivalent of sorbet. Yep. So he actually supposedly asked Peyton Reed that this be a clever, fun, emotional story about family. There was a lot made of the fact that when you watched Avengers 3, Scott Lang's character and, and the Hope character just didn't figure into the action. Right. Sort of like, okay, where were they? That was a conscious decision because what happens in Ant-Man and the Wasp is crucial and connects directly to what happens next in Avengers 4. Quoting here from, from Feige's uh, talk of the featurette, the characters of Scott Lang and Hope Dine are very important going forward, so make of the, that what you will, Marvel fans. Well, we've had our roster thinned out considerably, so when our core Avengers need some backup, you know, you've got to have at least one or two on the wings to call on, right? No, I I totally agree, (sighs) though the amount of speculation about the quantum universe and how that perhaps provides a pathway to reconstituting the Avengers or time travel or defeating Thanos, I mean, there's a lot of theories out there. So, yeah, Avengers 3, back on the, the 12th of this month, became the fourth film in Hollywood history to blow through the $2 billion box office barrier, at least when it comes to worldwide Mm. ticket sales. And the three other films to do that was Avatar, that still holds the record for $2.78 billion worldwide. And then there's another James Cameron film, Titanic, that came in at $2.18 billion. And then right behind that is Star Wars Force Awakens. That's currently sitting at $2.06 billion. And what's kind of significant about that number is since Infinity Wars blew through the barrier back on June 12th, it's continued to chug overseas. And mm-hmm. as of us recording this show, only $37.6 million separates Infinity Wars ticket sales and The Force Awakens ticket sales. So it's entirely possible in the coming month that not only will Avengers 3 wind up passing the box office total of, of episode 7 and become the third highest grossing film in Hollywood history. After that, though, it's increasingly doubtful that it will be able to, to catch up to Titanic. That's still a pretty impressive number. Yeah, I don't think that Disney would begrudge it that extra little couple hundred million. They and it's not like they don't have another Avengers movie around the corner to make all that money all over again. So They need every single one of the dollars that these things make because I'm sure you were, you're watching the business news over the past month and Comcast made a run at 20th Century Fox's entertainment assets, which we talked about on the previous show. Disney was anxious to acquire. In fact, you know, had made a... billion bid. Mind you, it was an all-stock swap, basically. And Comcast, which was upset because basically when this acquisition deal was announced in December of 2017, Comcast had actually made a higher bid, which Mm -hmm. Fox had rejected, opting to go instead with the Disney deal. And so it took Comcast a number of months to do this, but they then pulled together an all-cash bid for the company. They came back and, and offered Fox shareholders $65 billion for uh, these, the, again, these same film and, and television production assets. And 
Disney, you know, so it was kind of rocked back on its heels for a bit. And, you know, it took it a while to crunch the numbers and decide how they should come back. And Wednesday of this past week, they came in with a $71.3 billion bid for the same assets. Wow. Effectively, they're now offering Fox shareholders $38 a share with the hope that they can finally push Comcast back. Over the past week, a number of people have sort of turned and it's like, well, how will Disney recover that money? Because they've had to bump up their deal considerably. But the Wall Street Journal actually chimed in on Thursday that, to be honest, there's a reason that Fox upper management really wants Disney to come out on top here. And it has Mm -hmm. a lot to do with the Marvel superheroes that Fox acquired the film rights to X-Men, Deadpool, and the Fantastic Four back in the 1990s. Now, Disney's last five films, based on the Marvel characters, it's grossed a combined $5.7 billion worldwide, whereas mm-hmm. the last five Marvel movies that Fox released only grossed $2.7 billion. A $3 billion gap there. This is all the more remarkable, because when you think about it, Disney did this reaching really far down into the Marvel catalog. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy wasn't exactly front of mind for a lot of folks, and they've turned that into not only a popular film franchise, but we've got the theme park attraction. In fact, there's a stage show that just debuted at Epcot earlier this month, and construction's underway on the indoor coaster attraction for that same theme park. But the Wall Street Journal points out, it's like, like perhaps the X-Men brand w- was just getting tired. There's been six X-Men films to date, plus several spinoffs. But Disney's shown that they can turn uh, exhausted comic book franchises around. And, and for example, they point to the 2015 deal that Disney cut with Sony, where they would take over creative control, but not full ownership of the Spider-Man mm-hmm. movies. And as a direct result... Spider-Man Homecoming, that made $880 million worldwide last year. And when you compare that to the $709 million that The Amazing Spider-Man 2, the last film that was produced solely by Sony back in May of 2014, mm-hmm. earned. But here, the wild card here is, is Brian Roberts. He's the current chairman and CEO of Comcast. And there's a number of folks on Wall Street right now who are betting that he comes back with another offer and then it becomes a question of how badly does disney want this Iger out ahead of this 7.3 billion dollar revised bid mm-hmm. mentioned that just in the past six months the number of folks who have gone tapped into movies and tv shows that are available through subscription services i mean it's it's been like a 200 percent jump Mm-hmm. And he just flat out said, look, the consumers are voting loudly. This is how Disney views this deal. This is about content. This is about yeah. library. And let's not forget that it, as part of this deal, a whole bunch of new Marvel characters become available to fold into the cinematic universe. Likewise, whatever rights the 20th Century Fox still holds on to for the original Star Wars trilogy, those revert back to Disney and Lucasfilm. So... There's a lot of stuff here, whereas Comcast, this is really more about global reach. Well, Comcast is like one of the most hated companies year after year. It's like voted most hated company in America. Usually it's mostly due to poor customer service Mm -hmm. as being the reason for that. High rates, actually exorbitant rates being part of the problem for that. Yeah, I really dislike Comcast as a company. So I don't want them to have anything cool because they'll just mess <laughs> it up. I mean, it's it's kind of like a little kid that's just got done eating a jelly sandwich and they got jam all over it and they're like, let me look at your nice painting and then they want to touch it and you're like, no, don't touch it. You're going to ruin it. It used to be valuable. Wow. Okay. Now I'm never going to look at Brian Roberts without picturing jelly on his face. Thank you. Yeah. That's yeah. Aaron, really? Wow. Okay. <laughs> but to be fair here, and understanding that this is a seismic event, provided this acquisition deal closes. But here's the thing the folks at Marvel Studios, as much as they'd love to get serious about can we bring the X Men characters in and all that. They're right now really focusing on not what could happen, 
But what is happening? For example, the Black Widow movie. You and I previously talked about how Jack Schaefer, uh, who wrote the teleplay for the Olaf's Frozen Adventure holiday special to Disney Animation Studios ran on ABC this past season, she got tapped to write the screenplay for the Black Widow movie. And evidently, it turned out really, really well because Marvel immediately began looking for a director. And what's interesting is they threw the, a wide net they had 65 candidates initially, and they've now cut it back to three. The final three candidates are all female directors. We have Ama Asant, who's a director-screenwriter. We have Maggie Betts, who prefers to list herself as a screenwriter-director. And then we have Kate Shoreland, who is an Australian director of film and television. This project's clearly been fast-tracked, Aaron. Mm. As I understand it, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 basically start shooting in the January-February window of 2019 down in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. The talk right now is they want Black Widow to be the very next film in the production pipeline. As the crew and the design team and all that are sort of stepping off of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, they would just pivot and begin working on Black Widow, which... Doesn't have a, a firm release date yet. I don't think we'll find that out till CinemaCon of next year in Las Vegas. But right. as so as of right now, it's kind of slipping and sliding around the schedule with either a late 2020 release date or an early 2021. Disney has a nice slip and slide going right now because they're keeping everything post next avengers kind of in the dark obviously we've got spider-man and guardians because those are actually going into production so we'll be made aware of their existence but beyond that it gets kind of shadowy where you can't really tell what's gonna happen and marvel hasn't given us the next five years of movie plans yet james gunn is out there and has actually confirmed that volume three is going to be set in the post Avengers 4 version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that's kind of intriguing because as of right now, and again, I apologize, spoilers for for the one person in North America who hasn't seen Infinity Wars yet, Rocket was basically the last Guardian standing as that movie came to a close. So, so shouldn't it be called Guardian <laughs> of the Galaxy? But did you see that interview with, with the gentleman who does Drax the Destroyer? In the past month, he's been doing press for the Hotel Artemis and mm -hmm. Collider sat down with him and got talking about well so what's been going on since Infinity Wars opened to theaters and he says I'm getting all these texts from friends and family who were like oh I can't believe you're dead your character's dead you know they're all heartbroken and he's like I'm going to be in four. I, I'm going to be in Guardians three. And, you know, it's like, so mm. look, I don't know how they're bringing my character back. But, yeah, somehow Drax manages to make it because as far as I know, my, my character is in Guardians three. So, so I have to be back. Did you see where Gunn also talked about what the translation of Groot, what Groot is actually saying in the script when he fades? He called Rocket Dad, yeah. didn't he? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. There's a piece of concept art that's been making the rounds that sort of shows the what the base unit will be for Avengers 4. Rocket's right in there with the Hulk and the rest of the group. But again, I don't have any specific yeah. information on the province of this piece of concept art. And, you know, there, there's always a fear when you're looking at something like that. It's a really talented fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh uh, speaking of Guardians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're now going to jump ahead to like 2023 when Guardians of the Galaxy 4 shows up. Because evidently James Gunn has said that he would love, if they invite him back, to do a fourth film to reach back to sort of use the original Guardians lineup as a place he could pull team members from. Does that mean Star-Lord and Gamora go off and do something else or have their happy ending? Or I don't know what to tell you. Does that mean that we get Stallone and Miley Cyrus and I can't remember who the other ones were that were in the last movie. Stallone definitely is one of the original members. Yeah, and Gunn would dearly love to fold him in. But again, you need a place on the team and... We've already added Mantis. 
Gunn has basically sort of inferred that he'd love to get the original band back together, but how exactly do you do that given how much the world loves Groot and Rocket? Yeah, but they also love other characters in the Marvel Universe. I mean, it's love is a beautiful thing that it can only grow. If another wonderful, awesome character comes into the Marvel Universe and we happen to love them as well, so be it. Which brings me to the next bit of news. Just recently, Kevin Feige got asked in an interview with IGN about going forward now, are they going to hear closer that came out of the original comic books? And this is what, what Feige said, that you know we're now 19 films into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And while the comic books continue to be an amazing resource for Marvel Studios in terms of character, in terms of broad storylines, or as the jumping off point for big stories like Civil War or the Infinity Gauntlet, it's like, yeah, well, we're going to continue to draw from the comics, but at the same time, we've now established our own continuity within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And which is why fans should probably be ready for us to start drawing inspiration and taking some of our story cues from the films, from the earlier movies. So you know how in Homecoming, director John Watts reimagined Ned Leeds as a Hawaiian-American and never mind how Zendaya's Michelle Jones totally flipped the script as far as MJ was concerned. So Mm -hmm. have you heard about these auditions that are have been popping up online for Gwen Stacy? No. Spider-Man is one of those things. Let's see. During the Tobey Maguire Mm -hmm. days, I ravenously consumed every piece of information that Mm -hmm. came out and ended up knowing most of the movie before I ever saw it in Mm -hmm. theaters. So now that I'm a little bit older, I can wait for Christmas to actually arrive before I open my present. And I, I usually like... For big movies like Avengers, Infinity War, and Spider-Man movies, I usually try and avoid clicking on the links that tell me information or show me stuff. I like to go in as cold as possible on some of those movies. So I'm not surprised that they're going to throw a Gwen in there. And the fact that they would change her to be uh, English is of no bother to me in any way, shape, or form. One of the very best, and I remember reading the the tragic death of Gwen Stacy when I was little, and it was, oh, it still makes me sad. But anyway, years and years mm-hmm. later, Marvel did a series of comic books. One was called Daredevil Yellow, and it examined Daredevil's early days in his yellow costume, and then they did Spider-Man Blue. And Spider-Man Blue was Peter basically telling the story of, of Gwen's death from a different point of view than what you read the first time around. And that stupid book made me cry like a little idiot for like half an hour. It was so beautiful that I, I really, really thought that they had the the heart so well of that relationship. Hmm. So if, if they can get someone on their team to write that connection and those characters as beautifully as they have in the past, I don't care if, what continent she comes from. I don't care what hair color she has. It just has to be the right character. And if they get a perfect actress and, you know, you fall in love with her on screen, then that's Gwen Stacy. That's a good, healthy attitude. I admire your self-control, your attitude. Me, I'm a big shake the Christmas package, peel back the wrapping. I have no self-control. Normally I am the same way on most things, but there have been certain things where I've just kind of decided that this is a landmark Mm. moment. We've been building up for Avengers Infinity Wars for Mm. 10 years. So that was like the one that I had to set aside and go, nope, that's got to be special. And then, you know, when Spider-Man came back into the Marvel Universe, that was another one. I've waited so long for Marvel to reacquire Mm. Spider-Man and be able to tell that story that I really did want to go into Homecoming as cold as possible to really have the freshest eyes on it and just enjoy the ride. So I'm hoping for much the same in Spider-Man 2 and whatever changes they want to throw my way, I have faith that the team understands their characters enough that no matter what changes they make, the core of what makes them special is still relevant. Forgive me if this spoils far from home a little bit but go ahead evidently the sides that they put out there the casting pieces the idea supposedly is she's a foreign exchange student as in she just like peter is somebody coming to london to take part in some sort of academic exchange program i don't think it's another 
academic decathlon, similar to the excuse they used to get the characters down to, to Washington, D.C. and Homecoming. The warning out front is don't expect a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Gwen Stacy this time around. They're going for a more exotic take on the character. Though, although speaking of blondes, when we get back from our commercial break, you and I should talk about the huge impression that Olivia Holt is is now making in Marvel's Cloak and Dagger, which debuted on Freeform back in June. We'll be back in just a minute, folks. Hang in there. And we're back. I guess I should say at the top of the segment that Aaron has thrown himself on the television binging grenade. Gladly. I will gladly take that job. <laughs> but this, this is tougher than it looks when you consider yeah. how many Extendo episodes of Legion you've now had to watch. Because they never actually come in at 60 minutes. They were like 75, 90. I mean, they're jam-packed with, yeah. with amazing imagery. Likewise, the new season of Luke Cage literally dropped like days ago. And so you... You had yeah. to make your way through all 13 episodes of that to be... Plowed through it like a bulldozer, <sighs> baby. Okay. It was good stuff. And what about Cloak and Dagger? Have you managed to catch that over on Freeform at all? Yes, I've, I got caught up with that. And I got to say, like just starting off, that mm-hmm. overall, I find it rather enjoyable. I do like both of mm-hmm. the characters. The one biggest hurdle I have overcoming at the moment... Because Cloak and Dagger are currently separated, it is Cloak over to the left and Dagger way over to the right. So you spend half an episode with Cloak and half the episode with Dagger, and it just seems really slow. And then the second episode, they may do a little bit of a flashback or revisit Mm -hmm. something from one point of view, and then they revisit it again from the other point of view. And it seems like they're telling the same story twice from two different points of view, which can be really, really Mm -hmm. slow feeling. And I'm waiting for them to just get together so we can tell one storyline with them hand in hand instead of two separate storylines. And I think after that happens, it'll pick up and I'll enjoy it much more. Not that we actually need to establish your Marvel bona fides, but when did you become aware of these characters? Because I guess they made their debut in Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man number 64 back in March of 1982. I actually may have that issue in the closet right now. <laughs> okay. Day one. So I was there day you're one. You're the guy who should be talking about this show. Yeah. Because Jeff Loeb, when they announced the show was going to freeform at the Television Critics Association, they do a annual summer gathering where all the folks who create shows or that sort of thing sit down with, with the Critics Association. And at that time, this was headed to Freeform, which was reinventing itself as sort of a young adult channel. And right. critics are like, this is going to be like Twilight. You're reimagining this comic book series as, as something for young adults. And he said, Cloak and Dagger is a love story that happens to have characters that appeal to viewers from this age group. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like we took a Marvel comic and artificially turned it into something that would appeal to the young adult audience. Cloak and Dagger is a property that already speaks to this audience. And but would I do Punisher on Freeform? It's like, I don't think a property no. that's a property yeah. that, that would connect with this cable channel in that exact same way. So right. was that your sense going into it? I think it's the appropriate home for the content that they are providing. Mm-hmm. There is no need for this show to be on Netflix mm-hmm. because they're not getting really dirty or gritty or using foul language or anything like Luke Cage they drop all the words all the expletives Mm -hmm. left and right and it's adult language so you know if you're offended by language don't watch Luke Cage but I liked it Mm because it was it it felt honest Mm -hmm. that's one thing that bugs me is when you get so sanitized that the world becomes false and plastic and shiny and squeaky Mm -hmm. because the world's not like that it has a little bit of crud in the corner so they're able to go off in those corners and get a little bit dirty, but nothing that's offensive or that a parent would go, what are you watching? And turn it off. Nothing like that. Mm -hmm. So for the age group, really, if you remember being 18, Mm -hmm. life was so confusing. Nothing made sense. Relationships didn't make sense. You're always angry at your parents. It only took you 20 or 30 years later to find out how right they were. So (laughs) I think that If the kids are going to be that age Mm -hmm. and you want to portray them honestly and you want to speak to that audience, this is the right place for that to take place. Okay. What do you think 
of the New Orleans setting? Because wasn't the original Cloak and Dagger set in Boston? Well, you know, when you can teleport, you can move around. <laughs> Good point. All right. I actually lived in Mobile, Alabama for about a decade, mm-hmm. which meant that New Orleans was only a couple hours drive away. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, I spent a lot of time in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful, wonderful city to visit. Mm-hmm. Anytime I see anything made in New Orleans, it has that down-home feel to it. Not that New Orleans was my city, but I just like, oh, I, I know that mm-hmm. place. I've been there. I've had friends, and we've gone to that location or whatever. And I got a lot of friends that are still in New Orleans that work in radio there and whatnot. So I do feel connected to that city personally. And every time I see it on screen, I get warm, fuzzy feelings of home. Okay in a weird sort of party vibe mm-hmm. sense. I don't mind that they're in New Orleans just because of that personal thing for me. The reason, evidently, the production wound up in New Orleans and the, the fine way that, that films are made today. I mean, much the same reason that... Shooting is cheap. Well, that's it exactly. You know, the tax break, for yeah. example, for Atlanta is amazing. That's why Marvel shoots so much stuff there. And likewise, in Louisiana, all 10 episodes of this thing had a total budget of, of $42 million and evidently... With the promise that, uh, what is it, 11 million of the budget would go locally, they got an amazing deal to shoot there. And evidently, it did add a, a certain patina to the show and to circle back to the whole, will this work on Freeform? And it turns out when this show dropped back on, on June 7th, its two hour long debut, it became Freeform's best premiere in two years. In fact, it pulled in more eyeballs than the most highest rated show that they've had on the network. And that was the the Pretty Little Liars finale back in June of 2017. So there was a little mm-hmm. bit of a dip the following week, which is predictable. You know, people come in, sample a show, and not everybody comes back. But they seem very, very happy with how the show has been received so far. There's been word yet officially on a renewal But my understanding is that, especially given that Freeform just shut down Shadowhunters, that's only going to run three seasons on uh, this cable channel. Evidently, there's now a spot open for Cloak and Dagger. And so it'll be interesting to see when, not if, they make the announcement about season two. I've only got one word of advice for him. Pick up the pace. This is Cloak and Dagger, Mm -hmm. not Twin Peaks. Other than that, it's it's fine. It's enjoyable, but it's a bit slow right now. And the sooner you get those two together and start telling one storyline, it will move much faster and we can all have a raucous adventure together. I am dreading the idea that they're keeping them separated for the entire first season. And then at the end of season one, they come together with their full powers and costumes or something. And, you know, that's like the cliffhanger for season two. Because if that's the case, I will have checked out by episode five. Speaking of, of which... This series is now scheduled to run through August 2nd, and one would hope sometime over the next six weeks we'll hear something about a renewal. But again, that's on terrestrial TV, where you actually have to go and watch it each week, and or if you DVR, you pile them up and watch them later. Whereas Luke Cage, this is Netflix, and more to the point, again, you poor slob. You know, when all 13 episodes dropped on Friday? Yeah, at 3 a.m. Oh, <laughs> ow. You know, just to give people some background here, so... Luke Cage, also known as Power Man, was the first black superhero to be featured as a protagonist and title character of a comic book. And so, what, that was Hero for Hire, and the number one issue came out in June of 72. So, the interesting thing is that, that people have been kicking the tires of doing something with Luke Cage forever. In fact, what's kind of interesting is that Marvel Studios reacquired the rights to Luke Cage from Sony back in May of 2013 because they've been trying since 2003 to get a full-length live-action superhero movie. Remember, Disney acquires Marvel for $4 billion in August of 2009. January Mm -hmm. of 2010... Sony suddenly announces, hey, we're not going to do Spider-Man 4 with with Sam Raimi. We're going to do a brand new reboot of the series. One of the reasons they did that was because, according to the language of the the deal, if they didn't have a new Spider-Man film in development within a certain period of time, the film rights reverted back to the owner, which in this case would have been Disney. Sony was so sweating that Disney was going to force this issue, that Disney actually sends its attorneys over to Sony in November of 2011 
just sort of like, well, you know, we're being very patient here, and what are you going to do? And Sony actually handed back over to Disney all of the merchandising rights for Spider-Man at that time. I mean, this it's incredibly lucrative part of having the rights to the Spider-Man, you know, the film rights to Spider-Man was, was the, the, the movie merchandising rights. And they gave them back to Disney because it's like, please let us make this movie. Marvel gets the rights back to Luke Cage in May of 2013. By August of that, or excuse me, October of that same year, they've announced, here's the Netflix deal. They're going to do four series, a total of 60 episodes. We've got Luke Cage, we've got Daredevil, we've got Jessica Jones and Iron Fist. And eventually this all comes together for the Defenders. So prior to this you watched the original Luke Cage season one right the, the from uh, 2000 September of 2016 is that right or yep what's your take going into season two does it stand up quality wise yes it's funny because I get frustrated by really mm-hmm. really stupid things so I can say pretty much if you enjoyed season one you should be down with mm-hmm. season two without any problems the thing that I get really frustrated by is minor minor touch on spoilers that really don't matter bad guy a wants to hurt civilian b and so they surround the civilian with gasoline and they light a fire in this puddle of gasoline they walk out the door and then next scene is someone runs into luke cage's barbershop and they're like luke house is on fire and luke walks out the door Next shot is him walking up to a four-story building that is engulfed in flames. He walks into the front door, and there is the civilian surrounded by gasoline with no smoke damage. I mean, the fire goes up four stories of bricks, but does not ignite the area with the person that's surrounded by gasoline. I mean, at some point, someone's got to have fire logic fire does not work like this it does not avoid gasoline and go for brick it don't work like that so outside of like a stupid quibble like that where logic just breaks down for five minutes beyond that the rest of the show is great the bad guy is awesome so yeah luke cage is a lot of fun if you enjoyed the first one music is a very important part of that show and it's, it's like every episode, they showcase a different musical talent. And there's this one kid, I swear I saw him on YouTube, and he's a heavier set African-American kid, but he plays the blues guitar mm-hmm. like it's on fire. And the kid is astounding. He really put all of his youth into learning how to play the guitar like a master. But he is showcased for an episode in the jazz lounge and so that's one of the things i really like about luke cage is you know they pay attention to their culture and they support it and they showcase it that's what makes it all feel authentic and honest and like it's actually taking place in the real world is it doesn't feel manufactured it feels like luke cage's world for reals when you talk with folks about luke cage and you talk with folks about jessica jones the one knock that these shows repeatedly get is that Fans love the performances, but it just seems like they take four episodes worth of stories and then stretch it over ten. Yeah, and honestly, there's a bit of a reason for that. because, And you'll notice there's, there's definitely a pattern. Here it is. For all of the uh, Netflix Defenders cast shows, what happens is you've got your first episode to say, here's our hero today and what's going on. And then on the other side of the world, here's a bad guy. Just get a glimpse so you know that he exists. By episode three or four, what's going to happen is bad guy and good guy are going to meet face-to-face to to have a little sniff. Mm -hmm. What you got? And they don't really get into it. They just kind of dance around each other and maybe have a little discussion. And then they go their separate ways and they go, how am I going to get to stop the bad guy. And then the bad guy goes, how am I going to stop the good guy? And then they spend a couple episodes building up to that so that eventually by the time you get to the last episode, you'll have your showdown. It is a formula and it is kind of long and they really could do more besides just the bad guy that overarches the entire season. For example, 
Jessica Jones is a private investigator. You could show her going on a case or two that are exciting and full of adventure without having to be directly tied to the storyline. And I'm not advocating for just throwaway episodes, but you can also have other adventure besides the main, you know, the main bad guy thrown in to just kind of give it some different direction or spice things up. It's always nice for them to show off their powers. Oh, and in Luke Cage, I got to mention, they do bring back Iron Fist for just a, a minute or two. And I think they did a lot of work to really try and redeem Danny's character. He's not as annoying as he was in Iron Fist or Defenders. He ended up becoming the butt of the joke most of the time in the Defenders. But here he actually plays a, an important role for a minute. And uh, he went from my least favorite to, all right, I'd have a beer with that cat. He's, he's cool. So yeah, they, they really did a lot of work on Iron Fist's character. And they, they kind of bring him back for an episode to go, see, he's not so bad, right? He's okay. Well, and he is. He's cool. They do some redemption work there as well in, in the next season of Luke Cage. I remember as they were talking about doing these shows for Netflix, they were supposedly using the BBC Doctor Who playbook in that you wrote all of the episodes right. at the same time. So you knew the story you were telling and the callbacks and bringing characters in and how you'd pay off something that you did in episode two and episode seven. And did they get better at it in season two? Is that your sense? No, it's hmm. it's still the same formula. I mean, they're still, you know, doing the tap dance around episode three or four, then the long drawn out until you get to the, the climax at the end. And I mean, that formula is all the same and it's very, very linear. One way I can compare it to is almost like a Call of Duty video game where it looks like you're in a huge world, but really you're just kind of pushing forward on your joystick the whole time. You're not really deviating from the path at all that's set before you. It's just move forward and shoot. And so like in these type of episodes, it's just here's a bad guy, here's a good guy, episode one. Now we're going to separate them for a little while, bring them together so they can have a chit-chat and realize that, you know, they're going to have a confrontation later. Then they're going to separate, and then they're going to meet again at the end, and it's going to be the big showdown, and that'll be the finale. It is very, very formula-based in that writing style, and I think that's where they could use to uh, take one of the failures from Lost. You know, Lost had so many unanswered questions, and some people were okay with the fact that 50% of the questions were never answered. I'm not saying go that far, but you could just have a dead end where you go down a side street and go, oh, no, this ain't where the bad guy is, and turn around and go back. But have something exciting happen during that dead end episode. Just a little misdirection or something instead of this very, very tried and true formula that is very, very predictable. To be fair, all of the characters are good characters and they're played well. And outside of the formula being predictable, the story and the characters are still enjoyable for what they are. I like being in that universe. I just am looking for a little bit more nonlinear path in the storytelling. Lovely pivot point here to to turn to Legion. <laughs> oh. Throw out the linear. What linear? Now, Legion, on the exact opposite hand, is the most difficult to follow. I think I kind of understand what's going on. And yes, I've seen every episode from season one all the way through to current season two. And it's a fun ride. The Visually, it's bold, and they do amazing things. Here's the thing that I really enjoy about Legion. And if you ever study something like art, okay? When you study something like art, they teach you about a brush stroke. So, like, here is how you make a tree by tapping the brush, and here is how you make a mountain by, you know, taking the knife and scraping it across the palette. So those are techniques that you learn. In Legion, it seems like the people that are making it have learned every single camera trick ever created, and they went, we're going to use them all. Even at the same time, just use it all. Every trick that you've ever learned. And there are some amazing shots achieved through amazing camera technique. And I just got to say that the people that write really imaginative things don't have to worry about how people are going to achieve the impossible. You can easily write and the world explodes, but someone's got to visualize that, right? So give credit to the writers for writing the impossible and then give twice the credit to the visual team for achieving the impossible and making every second of Legion look as beautiful as it does. Oh, it, it's stunning. Even when I'm lost 
in the story. And you know when you go to the museum and there's that you are here? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I need that. I really need that. With I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the whole David Haller story, the whole notion of he believes he's schizophrenic, but perhaps the most powerful mutant ever. But it's one of these stories where you have to provide your own anchor. Yeah. There's so much stuff being thrown at you. Now, one thing about storytelling that I really enjoy. So David ends up, because he can, he can travel through space and time. So he ends up going to the future to talk to his girlfriend, who's now in the future. So she's many years older. And he ends up coming back to present time and talks to his girlfriend in present time. And she ends up asking, did you sleep with her? And he's like, well, you know, we're a couple. And she ends up getting jealous of her future self. And I think that is a wonderful question where you stop the TV and you go look at your spouse and you say, if I could travel through time and have intimacy with future you, would you get jealous of you? Or would you look at that as like, oh, some point in the future, I get to have bonus sex. (laughs) I couldn't get jealous of me having a relationship with my spouse. I mean, even it's in the future. I mean, how can I be jealous of me? But again, that's half of the funhouse mirror quality of Legion. But at the same time, it's it's a funhouse mirror looking into a funhouse mirror. Yeah. I will be talking the show up to a friend's. But at the same time, say, I really have to caution... I don't see this as an easy show. In fact, it's so interesting that you bring up Lost because when it was season three or four in and there were some wonderful turns in those seasons, but they lost audience year after year because that show became impossible in its middle years to enter. There was so much backstory. There was so much history that you, you just could not pick up in that pre-TV binging era. And throw in 30 MacGuffins that mean nothing at the end of it all, and you're just like, you don't know what to pay attention to. Is it worthwhile? Is it not? I don't know. Mm. Just go with it. But now, with Legion, one twist that they've recently added that I really enjoyed was the idea, you know, through this whole thing since episode one, the idea has been that there is this mega evil demon living inside of Legion that must be destroyed. And now they're saying, oh, you can't kill the demon because he actually saves the planet. And what does he end up saving the planet from? From David. And so now Legion is the bad guy of his own show, but he doesn't know it yet. All he knows is that the bad guy has to be saved so he can save the planet, but he doesn't know from what. And I'm like, that's awesome. Mm. The good guy's now the bad guy. The bad guy's the good guy. We don't know what's going on. It could be anybody's game. Yeah. The middle part of, of Lost had that wonderful quality as well. But the upside with Legion is earlier this month, got picked up for a third season. Right. Yep. It's going to continue. And obviously it'll be interesting to have them explore this whole demon David destroying the world aspect. But this is a show that in a lot of ways requires a lot of homework. I mean, I don't feel like you can just grab a single episode of this and just ease into this world. Yeah, you have to go back to episode one, season one. Otherwise, you are out in the middle of the Atlantic with no life preserver. But it's so well worth it, folks. I mean, just for the look of the thing, for the performances. And when you you think of the cast, I mean, Gene Smart, Bill Irwin, you know, just sort of all of these great, great people. I got to mention the uh, dance scene with Aubrey Plaza because she has said that she can't Mm -hmm. dance at all. And she plays like indifferent very, very well. But when she plays psychotic indifferent, she goes from adorkable, cute to I think she could rip my heart out of my chest. She can be terrifying. And I love her. I think she is absolutely stunning in the show. So, like, every time she's on screen, it's just like, oh, what's she going to do? What's she going to do? Because she's crazy. Mm-hmm. No, it's just, again, folks, really, they just finished the season finale for season two, aired on, on June 12th. But in this age of media that we live in, you can still chase this down, still watch it. I don't know, Jim, if you have this problem, I'll binge watch season one of something, and then it will take almost a full calendar year for season mm-hmm. two to come out. And then I can't remember anything from season so, one. And I feel like I have to go, go back. back and watch oh, that again. Yes. Yeah. It's one of those things with Legion being as complex mm-hmm. as it is. I would almost recommend that you only watch like one episode mm-hmm. per day. 
give your brain a day to sit on what it's watched and try and figure it out because it can almost be maddening if you just watch it straight through it's it flips and it flops and if you lose your attention for a second you're lost so just yeah one episode per day give yourself the full 75 minutes uninterrupted so you can get through it without any any questions and then give yourself a night to go what the hell was that so i wonder if it would actually make more sense to sort of put a pin in this show till say late spring of 2019 when season just prior to season three debuting because it's like if you do your homework by the time season three debuts you're current you've got the look the visual style you understand the stakes and then you slide into three this one's worth the effort on the other hand lost i'm probably one of the only people on the planet who when they watched the finale were like yeah i guess that's how you have to end it because how the hell are you going to end it otherwise yeah they wrote themselves into a corner that just happened to look like a church (laughs) oh oh, before (laughs) i forget though that interesting thing especially with disney starting this new subscription service and more to the point with the gentleman who just did lost and and they then transitioned to being the producers creators of uh, once upon a time both once mm-hmm. upon a time and lost are supposedly being considered for i don't think the term reboot works it's more revisiting oh, no. expanding yes no yes. say it's a tragic <laughs> misnomer Please. i'm sorry this subscription service there's actually cool stuff coming or stuff that we would look forward to with this like they're doing a brand new muppet show that's going to be done in much the same style as the the 1975 muppet show but yes if you go the with the subscription model there's still enough people who'd be interested in a once upon a time no no you're wrong no you're wrong i'm sorry <laughs> I will have to just say that flatly. <laughs> That's completely okay, wrong. Okay, well, well, on that note, I guess we're going to bring the latest episode of Marvelous Disney to a close, though. Please come back later this month because, again, we got Ant-Man and the Wasp opening on July 6th. Aaron, I'm so looking forward to talking with you about how this, the end of this film, and we know that Michelle Pfeiffer's out there. We know that she's playing Janet, so it's like... How do they bring this character back to the stage? And more to the point, how does this connect back up with Avengers 4? Right on. We'll we'll talk about that on our next show. So for now, folks, thanks for listening. And on behalf of Aaron, uh, myself, come on back soon. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.